Survives Wingfoot. Now the moment Aaron Bradley has waited. Curry Webb is the five-time Australian Open champion. Golf at its best by one of the best in golf, Peter Thompson. Stand in front of a crowd like this today and win the PGA Championship is pretty special. He's done it at last. Greg Norman. Stonehaven Cup. Leash been to 11 under. Now we've got a new leader, kids. Here it is. Adam Scott. A life changer. Coming up next, you have unrestricted access to golf across Australia and the world. Thanks to Golf Australia, we're going inside the ropes. Subscribe now on iTunes or your favourite podcast app or head to golf.org.au. G'day everybody, welcome to the show. It is Inside the Ropes, episode number 49. Big show. It's been a significant week in Australian golf with the passing of Peter Thompson. His son Andrew Thompson going to join us on the show a little bit later on, as will the CEO of Golf Victoria, Simon Brookhouse. We touched on last week's program, the announcement that the Vic Open has extended its tenure at 13th Beach for four years. Prize money's gone from 300000 in 2013 up to $3 million for the next four years. Uh, it is a tournament heading in all the right directions. A lot to talk about before we get to both of those gentlemen, Martin Blake, Joins me again. Hello, Gazelle. G'day, Andy. Good to see you. It's Looking forward. Week, has, it's been a big it, week, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. It wasn't a shock uh, with Peter. You know, every, I think everyone in golf had heard. I think I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago that he wasn't too well. Yep. So he's a ripe old age. He's had a, a great innings, and he, he is a all-time legend of Australian sport, not just golf. So it'd be great to hear from Andrew, his son, who is actually still grieving and has to go through the service on, well, we're, we're recording this on a Tuesday. It's Thursday at the MCG. Yep. Andrew Tom, uh, Thompson himself is a, a lawyer based in Japan. He's been a minister of the government of Australia. Uh, he's a very impressive person himself, so looking forward to hearing from that. There's a lot of Peter Thompson stories to be told. Mike Clayton, as I say hello to you, um, I don't think they'll all ever probably be told, will they? He's uh, lived a life. There are a lot of them. Yeah. Yep, there are a yeah. lot of them. But there are some great books about his life. Peter Mitchell, the Channel 7 newsreader, wrote a great book about Peter like 20 years ago probably. And yeah. Josh Slattery is doing a third reprint of A Life in Golf, I think, the, the second. Yeah. They, they, they were, so he never wanted to write a book, did he? He never wanted to write a book, no, but he wrote this a lot. This is part of the kind of humility of Tom O'Reilly. He wanted to write a book, but he he wrote prolifically. Probably no golf professional ever wrote as much as he did. He wrote columns for The Age for years. He wrote forwards for books. I mean, almost every golf book in Australia that came out was a forward by Peter Thompson. He wrote chapters for Jack Pollard, Golf the Australian Way. It was a series of books yeah, in the I 70s. Remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had a couple of chapters in that on the, the so mental approach to he, golf. He didn't want to do an autobiography is what I probably should have said. But yeah, I no. think that Steve Perkin pulled together a, a, a book with him, which was a, a lot of grabs of his writing. And Andy, he, his writing style is exactly the same as as his own personal style, which is very cutting and biting and, you know, sharp and very direct. He, you know, Jeff Slattery, the publisher of that book, um, Clates, just correct me with the name of that book, the Steve Perkin book. Is it? it's called, a it's Life called, in Golf. A, yeah. a Life in Golf. But it's a very The original small one book. was a red book that yeah. had a different title. but I think it was yeah. really, really good. But um, 
Uh, yeah, Steve just pulled together a lot of collections of, of what he did, and um, it, it's, it's very good. So we look forward to talking to Andrew about that. It, it's not really the most appropriate jumping-off point, and I'm sure it's not the biggest issue in the world of golf this week, but probably best to go to you, Clates. Can you please explain what Greg Norman has been up to in the last five or six days? What the hell has the man been doing? Well, Nick Fowler did the most appropriate tweet. Just why? What? Why? Well, it's a men's health magazine. So it's a it's a, a, a health, the Golf Digest men's health edition, or I think I'm right. I couldn't, ESPN is. It? ESPN. Yeah. Men's, yeah. So it was all getting a bit scrambled. I couldn't get past the imagery. Everything else was a bit scrambled thereafter, but... Um, the juxtaposition of those two things, the fact, that, the fact that Peter Thompson it's... died and Greg Norman got his gear off, I'm just sort of, can you get your head around that at all? <laughs> I'm, I'm almost thankful Peter never really Wasn't... saw those images. It was, <laughs> that, that's been the ultimate disappointment. Uh, it's like, is, is, is this what the world's come to? <laughs> Oh, yes, I must say, is. Andy, yes, uh, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really covering golf when Greg was at the height of his career. I was probably chasing around the cricket tour, but uh, I've been told by several people that Greg didn't mind getting the kit off. Um, <laughs> you know, he was one of these guys that sort of wandered around the the, uh, the clubhouse, you know, behind closed so doors. He certainly, is that, would that be true? I, I, I never saw it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Well, well I guess if you had I a body, uh, the common refrain is very fit, men, isn't he? Oh, that's right. If, if I'm, how old is he? 70? 63. 60, he's only 63. Yeah. Oh, well, mm. if, I'm, if I'm looking like that when I'm 63, I won't have many clothes on as well. <laughs> I'd want the rest of the world to see just how good I look. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. No, you, you don't think so? <laughs> no. He does spend a lot of time getting himself right, doesn't he? I mean, I'm not sure what else he's got on in the world right now, but well, he, he said time, in mate. his Australian story uh, interview that he had no ego. Uh, that's the, that he had no ego. <laughs> they left that in. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, he's. Anyway. Yeah, no, we'll, okay. We'll get a wriggle on. That was an awkward sort of starting point for yeah. the show. Uh, uh, Bubba wins again. Mm. He's won three times now since changing balls. Everybody's trying to complicate this. Um, the tech, I know the people on the boys on, and girls on the Golf Channel are starting to take this, pull this thing apart to its nth degree, trying to analyse why he's rediscovered the game. But could it be that simple that he's gone from the Volvic ball back to the Titleist? Could it possibly be as simple as that? Well, it's the only explanation, isn't it? Seems to be pretty straightforward to me. Fell off the world when he moved to it and Mm. went back winning when he went back to the other ball, to the Titleist ball. So, I mean, it's not a... I have played with it. I played one round with it once. The Volvic? Yeah, it's not, not a great ball, you have to say. What does it do? Well... Just doesn't feel any good. Oh look, I, I, that's unfair. I mean, I played one round. I yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You know, I just didn't think it was as good as a title. I mean, Titleist make. Well, I was going to say Titleist make and have made always the best golf balls. All the golf balls are pretty good now. Mm. I mean, I would defy anyone to take a Titleist made a Callaway, a Bridgestone, and a Titleist if they were blank and tell the difference. What sort of golf ball do you hit when you swing at one hundred and twenty-five? Miles an hour. What's what's the ideal? And you've got to move ball? it around. You want to shape it as much as he does. I mean, you've got to try. There's got to be a very specific relationship a between ball. that player and the ball he uses. I don't know. I mean, I've only ever played with a Titleist. Mm. Well, that's not quite true, but it's pretty much since I turned pro in 1981. I, apart from one year, I played with Dunlop because Dunlop made a great wind ball. The DDH was a great wind ball to use in Europe. But Tyler's pretty soon caught up. I mean, they've always made great balls. But they're a great marketing company too. I mean, they're out there. They're, yeah, they're there every week and yep. they're hanging the balls out and they're paying guys to use them. And I mean, 
if no one was paid to use a golf ball or a golf club, my suspicion is the majority would play with a Titleist ball and a set of Mizuno irons. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, Jeff Ogilvy wrote a, a piece in the Golf Digest, uh, Clades, I'm not sure if you've read that yet, about Bubba Watson saying that he's a misunderstood genius. I think, you know, if he was a slightly different personality, uh, he'd be immensely popular because to actually watch him play it's golf is, is incredibly oh, no, good. I mean, he, yeah. he's a one-off. Uh, the first time I saw him was down here at Huntingdale in the Masters a few years ago when he was a young guy, and he made a gig of himself uh, on the last day, you know, carrying on, and, you know, uh, there was an issue over uh, what what his tea time was, which group he was in, and that Andrew Langford-Jones for the tour had a terrible trouble with him. He was he was an upstart. He was, a, he was uh, an idiot in a lot of ways, but... Having said that, I've never seen anyone shape the ball like that. He was, he was, you know, hitting big draws that particular day. The first, I reckon thirty meter draws, you know, unbelievable. Did he lose the playoff that week, or he was in the last group? But he, he arced up about. He did because they they, they do the draw differently ball. here than America, and he assumed they were going to do it the same way. And he he thought he should have been in the last group, and Correct. he was in the second last group or something. Correct, and then he arced up about it in the end, and a particular Australian player had to. Step aside and let him go into the last group because he was carrying on so I much. I didn't realise yeah. that. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Who was the player? Uh, he might have had a few issues himself, this particular guy. Uh, Rob Hell, I think. Yeah, okay. maybe. Um, okay. I remember the new calling when they, they reshaped the first six holes yeah, of the calling. Yep. The first is that par five with the water down the left. Yep. But you'll know the numbers better than me, Clates, with a bunker out on the right off the tee, about 240 from the tee. Yeah, I, and on the Saturday, it was the President's Cup year, so they're all out here playing. I've never played that. Yeah. I've walked around those new six holes. I've never played them, so I don't know. I can't imagine well, they'd be terribly high on yours. No, well, when Clive Palmer's destroyed the yeah, place. No, so. it's, it's Appar- apparently. Yeah, well, yeah. Allegedly. Is that what yeah, you're well, supposed well, to no, say? No, no, I think it's, it's true. I think that's there are weeds in the bunkers, but supposedly. He was yeah. playing with a great friend of ours, Marcus Fraser, who's at the other end of the spectrum on the Saturday when it comes to how far they hit the golf ball. And Frey's hit his three wood, played a genuine par, three shot par five. Mm. Three wood just out to the short of the bunker on the right, lay up, and then the little creek carry mm. to that green. So he hit the three wood out to the bunker, and then he was he was away. And then Bubba, who's clearly left handed, Fraser's right handed, when he pegged his ball up, he was heading, he was shaping to hit it 90 degrees in a different direction from Marcus Fraser. And everyone's, I'm not kidding, it was close to 90 degrees in a different direction. And I always looked at Fraser and he kind of looked at me and we sort of went, what's he doing? He hit a draw, a low ropey draw over the water, like took it down the water and sort of drew it back onto the fairway. The, it was impossible to get the actual yardage for their second shots in. But Fraser's like, I'm going to make it up. It was like 315 to the pin with his, to the hole mm. with his second shot. Bubba was like 130 to the hole with his second shot. Mm. It was almost a 200-meter differential remaining with their second shot on the same hole. Such was his ability not only to smash it, but to... Because he wouldn't have played that shot. Had he tried to shape that shot right to left, he would have been bringing the water into play. But he's so confident of draw... And let's, let's say he's hit at 320. Mm. I swear to God, the first... It would have taken 30 metres to get it to the water, but then it would have carried 200 metres. It would have been hovering over the water for 200 metres. It was ridiculous, the shot he played. And he did that all day. Like, and he only, only beat Fraser by a shot on the day. He plays like a savant, really. It was, you know, it's, 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 that's yeah, exactly it's, what it was. It's, it's yeah. Very, 
yep. unusual and fun to watch, and he's clearly a different cat. Really. So he shot 63. He shot 30 on the back nine, which mm. ne- nearly holed out on the on the last hole with a wedge. He's always, so he gives, always hitting a wedge, isn't he? And he's well, everyone's, of, everyone, well, everyone's not hitting a wedge into every hole, but it's getting a lot closer to everyone hitting a wedge into every hole than it's ever been before. He gives 200,000. You actually have to do a double take sometimes. He wins 1.26 million for winning the Travellers. That was his check for winning. Mm. Sometimes you actually have to remind yourself that yeah, well the majors are getting up towards two million. Yeah, which is that's a that's an obscene amount of money. But to his credit, he gave two hundred thousand of it to the tournament's charity, the Hole in the Wall Gang, which do summer camps for kids that have Mm. got physical Mm. and intellectual you know challenges. So. You know, I think you're right, Blake. He, he tries hard. He's yeah. all, he always rates slowly in those anonymous surveys of uh, tour players as to who they like and who they don't mm. like. He's always down the bottom there. He's fascinating to watch play. Have you but spent much time watching seen... him kind of get around a golf Not course? Not really. I was in Augusta the year he won, the year he hit that. It was amazing. We, when you go to Augusta, you walk up and down that hill so many shot. times. He and Louis went down the 10th hole. And oh, yes. Yeah. We were by the 18th green. And you could see the TV monitor in the, in the television tower. We thought we're not going down the hill another time. It's just, and of course, that was when he hit that ridiculous wedge out of the trees. He hooked it what fifty yards, oh, sixty out of yards. Yeah, yeah, what a crazy yeah. shot! So we were, we watched it on TV from a hundred yards away. But then was, you go and stand where he hit that. You, you know, because we know it's so famous. Like mm. everyone talks about yeah. the Mickelson shot on thirteen, which was ridiculous through the but, trees. Yeah, but then you look at <clears> where if you ever go to Augusta, stand. Where yeah, I've Watson done. I've done it. Shot from. I've done it. I, I was there that year, and uh, I, I got to play the next day. So we we, we went into those trees. And a lot of people have said to me, "Well, how come he had a, a clear line and everything?" Well, there, there's no rough at Augusta, so mm. you know mm. he he obviously had to to hook at about 35 meters, I think it was. Yeah, a right hander could never play that shot. No, you can't, no, you no. can't you slice it. Well, you, you couldn't Seve slice maybe, it. Maybe Bubba and Seve could, but As a bloke, so, so I just slice the ball that that far. But you can hook it. You can rope hook it. Yeah, well, I remember with he, a wedge he, that he came far. in yeah. for his press conference afterwards. He said, "Oh, well, that, that's my shot," you know. But mm. at the time, he was hitting a lot of. Hooks, that's my understanding. Nowadays, he tends to hit more of a cut, mm. but uh, he, he said, well, that's my shot, so I just hit it. But he had to, I mean, he had to, Andy, he had to fire it out at the TV that's tower. That's crazy stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, if he doesn't hook it, let's say, I mean, it's just dead. He's gone. Yeah. Um, Bryson DeChambeau is being investigated. Oh, with the compass, yeah. Yeah, so he, mm. he's been doing this compass for two protractor? years. Compass protractor? What are they compass. No, he's compass. Got, so he's, got the, he's got the yardage book. The compass, um, as in, like an old not a directional compass, but the thing in the no, school with the needle old, in it. Yeah, one yeah. of those things with the two pointy ends that you, you know, that you see used to use in the kind of wartime. Mm. So he's got the compass in the third round. They've seen it on the tally, and he's using the compass to locate the hole, the exact, the exact location. position of the hole, and he's got the he's manoeuvring the compass over his yardage mm. yardage book. Has it really come to this? Like, is this? Well, that's him, isn't it? That's he's, he's out there trying to be different, isn't he? Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the rules. I was just reading about this earlier, Andy. Like Rule fourteen point three. You know, you can't use any artificial device or unusual equipment, or use any equipment in an abnormal manner. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's against the rules. I, I don't know. It's are just Bryson being Bryson. Are the USGA coming up with a ruling on it? Or I believe or they've been asked. Yeah. To, I think the tour has asked the USGA to tell them what to do. I'm not sure it's helping him that much. I mean, it can't be that. He's still at the ball. <laughs> you think, compare, what would Peter Thompson say about that? Well, Thomas, another great line. He watched a young player on TV, I was watching once, go through the whole 
exercise of pacing off and getting the book out and writing the notes in the book and pulling the wedge out and knocking it to 30 feet. And he said, hmm, and with all that information too. Yeah. <laughs> Which was another great line. It was, you know, it's so – with all that information too. I mean, Peter would stand there and look at it and take a wedge out and go – and he would knock it in there six feet away with – he was contemptuous of yardages, really, which are, of course, a part of the modern game, and they've mm. helped their players play better, I think. But what they've done is beaten out of everybody the, the concept of using your judgment. When oh, we were kids, you would play a practice round, and the question always was, what club did you hit or what club do you think it is? Now all you ever hear is, how far is it? Well, yeah. you talk about playing the game on the ground all the time. With equipment and track, like you've all got a track man now on the range, they don't worry about what's between them and the hole. They just need to know the number. Mm-hmm. And they hit it it's in the air. That's what fly. they do. They don't try and shape balls onto the fronts of greens anymore. Run them but when ball. they get on the links of Ireland and Scotland and, and England, I mean, it, it, the yardage is irrelevant. Well, it's on a windy day at St Andrews or Canusia. Yeah, yeah. Making a rash generalisation, it's the issue with the US Tour, is that everything is so much the same. The fairways are the same width. Mm. The the rough the the rough and the grass the, the grass and the rough is the the same height and it's higher the further you go in and the greens are the same speed every week and the bunkers have got the same consistency of set so you're very much it's a very much a formulaic when you go into McDonald's you get a McDonald's hamburger they're all the same yeah well the tour courses are as a generalisation very similar in setup so when you go to a Carnoustie as they'll do in a couple of weeks to the Open Championship yardage can be two hundred yards can be a nine iron and one hundred and forty yards can yeah. be a four iron yeah. So good luck, you know. You can give get a yardage if you like, but it's not going to help you. So, so the players with the greatest, uh, the skill to judge a shot, to judge the weight of a shot, and the force, which was Peter's great strength, to to judge the weight and the force of a shot, how hard to hit it, how, how fast and hard to make the ball go through the wind, and where to bounce it, and how to make it run, and that's the beauty of playing on courses that are more interesting than the. They can week still, to week PJ Tour, they can still do this, though, can't they? These guys are good enough to play those shots if they... Well, yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah. But, but the courses are not asking them that question. Yeah, right. Yeah. The courses ask a very one-dimensional question. Yeah. As a generalisation. I mean, we yeah, saw no, it's a really fair, yeah, Trinity yeah. Forest a few weeks ago, which was a much different test. But you, know, you, you watch the course in Hartford last week. It's indistinguishable from what happens at Bay Hill or at... You know, the camper open this week, or yeah. it's, all, it's all pretty much the same sort of golf they play. Um, did you watch any of the European, the BMW International yeah. Open? Yeah, Scott Hinn had a good run at that, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, uh, but it was quite extraordinary what happened to him on the last day because I, I turned on the telly to watch it, Clates, and uh, he was tied for the lead through three, three days. Three, yeah. I turned on the TV and he's already three shots behind before he had before started he the last round. Well, what, there were six guys three shots behind, weren't there? So Olsen, Tour Beyond yeah. Olsen shot 61, 61 and had finished. So, uh, poor old Hindi steps on the tee and he's got to pick up three shots. To, and he wasn't and he able did. to do it. And he, but, no, he did in the front nine. He got three, three under to the turn and then he hit his drive on 10 on the car path. Car path or something? Did he get a bad bounce off a car path? Yeah, or somewhere? yeah he did. So he took double there, I think. And he sort of hung around. He'd only been beaten by three. So it was a really... And judging... I don't know whether Scott Hen has always been like this. I, I've never... I always thought Scott Hen was a pretty grumpy old bugger, but... He's become really um, hmm. engaging, yeah, yeah. With particularly with social media, yeah, he has. Um, and he's been, you know, he said, "I don't know where this came from. I'm rap, you know, great host. So I'm, now I'm happy to sort of take this form and I'll launch." His dress and we'll sense see where is we're going. kind of interesting. Yeah, well, he's 
He's not shy when it no, comes to that. At least he but, keeps his clothes. But the on. real revelation of the weekend was that bloke in Korea. Well, we're going to talk. Can we yeah. talk about him later? Absolutely, we can Ho talk about Sun him. Ho Sun Choi. Yeah, how about Because he could probably shape as a rider. He could probably shape that ball out of the pine straw on ten, if anyone can. In fact, you're talking about him now. He played the Korean Open, finished five under, misses qualification, but he was in the mix the whole way. Qualification for the so, top two so players. Tell, tell me this, I, I've seen one video of him hitting a crazy shot, almost like a Happy Gilmore style, you know, swinging himself off his feet. But does he do that every time or, or a lot no, of times? No, not every or, time, or but, there was, he... but there was a lot of it and very oh. animated and emotional. And, yeah. You know, he was terrific. He was kind of bizarre to watch. Weird, you know, He's crazy. Never seen anything like it. If you're a tournament, if I'm organising, if I'm Trevor Hurden, I'm so I'm getting him down in the open. Yeah. I am saying you if you there's a spot here for you, and obviously you he can it. play as well. He's well, he not, shot not five under. He's in the mix. Of, no, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's in the yeah, mix of way, so he can obviously play. But it's just great to see. And this is probably why the Bubba thing, you know, we saw sort of caught between the two because you want to see players break the mould because the mould is so established. In the modern game, you love seeing players do it a bit differently. Mm. So many players swing the same oh, now. You know, it's that. They dress the same. They wear the same visors, the same caps, the same shirts, the same bags. It's anyway. So you see this bloke, and he's he's a he's one right out of the box. Is there a, is there a place for, for blokes to go back and dress in the the polyester and hard colours of the, and the the florals of the seventies? I like the hard colours. They're a bit too big, but can I someone like pull it off? Uh, Colour TV has got a lot to answer for because if you look, get on YouTube and look at some of those seventies. <laughs> did you did you ever get around in any of that gear? Oh, I mean, right, even, even the great Jack Nicholas. I mean, some of the yeah. stuff. You're a bit of a high panner, weren't you? You hitched him uh, up a bit too high. Stuart Gim was the one guy. Oh, he was the Stuart most Gim, ridiculous yeah. of them all. Yeah, but he was the only one who pulled it off. He, he was the only the one twos, where you look back yeah. now. And as outrageous as Guinea was, he looks fantastic. He, Guinea pulled it off. With The other guys look ridiculous now, but Guinea could pull off the high fashion stuff brilliantly. I mean, he's a good-looking guy, great head of hair, but he wore the craziest of clothes. Who was he? Was it not Peter Teravani? There was an American guy out here who... Mike Calandro. Mike Calandro, yes. who used to do a bit of that as well. Yeah, but mm. Guinea pulled it off. Every Guinea was great fashion player. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he was the best. Had the hair. And, of course, he was... Payne Stewart saw... Guinea playing up in Asia in the plus twos and, or and plus that, fours. That became his signature. So Payne Stewart yeah. copied Guinea. That, 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 that was that where he got his stick his, from. His, yeah. uh, it was, know, yeah. His, his brand, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, we've got to get to, we'll get a break out by Andrew Thompson about to join us. Um, just the LPGA Tour. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, we've, there's a name I think if we didn't know about already. We well, know, I did we know, know about it, funnily enough. You did? I did. Tell, tell us about Nasa it. Nasa Hatuaka is coached by Gareth Jones, who used to be in the Australian system. Well, okay. So Gareth Jones was the sort of national coach for South Australia, and he went over and started helping out the Japanese uh, elite amateurs, of which NASA was one, so she knows all the Australian girls. And he's now her coach, and how good was she? I mean, she shot 63 in the last round. It's oh. her first win. I believe she's 19 years old. I mean, unbelievable. I think she won the Japan Open as an amateur. At 17. And then didn't play any good on the LPJ for... She even, maybe even LPGA went back to the tours. Either way, she didn't play very well the first year out there, but she's played much better this year. And Not capped uh, it off didn't by look winning. like she was a power player. Looked just precision irons. Yeah, good, you know. good technique and yeah. good player. Well, she Repeatable. finished tenth, at, tied tenth at the U.S. Women's Open three weeks ago. She's had four consecutive top yeah. ten finishes leading into this, and she blew them away. She started. Um, she ended up beating Minji Lee by eight. And they both start. Minji Lee finished tied third. She's beaten the field by six. Um, I didn't watch. It didn't 
It's funny how you draw the conclusion that, that low scores, not much of a course. I didn't watch the course, so I can't make a reasonable comment. Didn't say enough of it either. But it just comment, no. when you see so many low in, scores, it that's can't in three be, rounds too. Yeah, to what, what 20, they twenty-one yeah, under or it something. Can't three be, rounds. It can't be much of a test. No, no, no. It didn't look. That Which great is not either. a comment on her golf at all. But any time they're, they're, you know, they're shooting scores that low, it's a it's a bit of a pitch and putt joke. So they've got a, like. a major this week. Women's PGA Championship. So Minji Lee coming off, uh, you know, she's had a win earlier this year. She's been knocked over by Lydia Ko in a, a playoff. A bit unlucky there. One of the great shots we spoke about. And then third, this week she had two really good rounds. Then third round couldn't hold anything, no. struggled, fell behind Nasso. She was playing in the same group. But she'd be pretty much primed and ha- hasn't won a major yet. It's the missing thing from her. Resume, maybe maybe this is the week. That's uh, so. up north she's, of Chicago this week. That, she's one of the best players out there now, I mean, didn't she, really? She's absolutely. She's in the top ten, in the top 10 and yeah. she deserves to be, yeah. Kemper Lake's famous for, speaking of Payne Stewart, that's where he won his first major. Oh, is that right? Is that where the Kemper he beat, used to be held? No, but he beat Mike Reed, who bogeyed, I think he finished bogey, double bogey par maybe, and Payne buried the last. Beating by one. By one. Mike Reed was going to win all week and finished up not winning, losing by shot. Yeah, that hurts. Uh, we'll get a break out of the way. Um, Andrew Thompson's going to join us on the other side of the break to remember his dad. You're listening to Inside the Ropes. Hi, I'm Minji Lee, and I'm proud to be an ambassador for MyGolf, Australian Golf's national junior program. One of my favourite things about coming back to Australia is seeing all the kids getting into golf. My golf is every Aussie kid's first step on their golfing pathway. It's all about fun and friendship, learning golf and life skills in a safe and healthy environment. So, if your child is between 5 and 12 years old, be sure to find a program near you at mygolf.org.au. G'day, my name's Bob Shearer, the 1982 Australian Open champ. When you're listening on the radio, listen to the ropes for all the news and scoops coming up. Welcome back to the show. It's uh, been a, an amazing week in world golf. Um, we're about to be joined by Andrew Thompson, the son of Peter. But to you two fellas, before we get to Andrew, the, um, the recounting and the storytelling and the sense of the impact made by Peter Thompson, Andrew's dad, um, it's been the, the global outpouring of respect that I've detected that's come Peter Thompson's way has been something to behold in the last seven or eight days. And rightly so, yeah. of course, yeah. I think, you know, it's difficult. It's so long ago, the great the great deeds that Peter performed are in the 1950s to 60s, etc. as a player. So that's a long time ago. So, you know, there aren't too many of his sort of peers as players around to talk about it. But obviously we have people like Clates and... Ian Baker-Finch spoke about it because he mentored him and stuff like that. So you do get a, a sense of it. The biggest name, oh, we spoke on radio the day of Peter's passing, the biggest contribution to Australian golf, but how big a contribution to the global game do you think Peter made, Clates? Well, he played for pros other than himself, I always thought. He started Japan and Asia and he was the main guy in Europe and Britain when he played. So he gave those tournaments and those circuits, you know, um, legitimacy, really. And he was the big star and he turned up and he played and he wasn't getting paid for it when he could have easily gone to America and made more money. So he he was the father of the world tour, really, I think. You know, Greg Norman gets some credit for his idea, but that was Peter's idea long before Greg even thought of it. 
So, so you know, I, I think when you talk about Australia's greatest players, you it's not only what they do on the course, what they do off the course, and the contribution they make. And you know, he's far and away above everybody else when it comes to it. it, it if that's the measure, I think. It, well, it's certainly one of the measures, isn't yeah, it? You know, it's one of the measures, absolutely. Andrew Thompson is the son of Peter, and he's been good enough to join us um, after what's been a, an extraordinary week in terms of the conversations that have been had about your father, Andrew. Condolences to the family, and we appreciate you coming along for a chat. Um, how do you, as you look back on the week that's been, what sense do you get for the way that your father was regarded by the global sporting and golfing community in particular? Well, that goes back a long way. Um, <clears throat> uh, he was 88 uh, when he died, 16 over par. Uh, <laughs> so he'd been crook for a while. Um, so it wasn't a surprise. Um, but it, it's uh, it's very broad where these uh, tributes and kind words have come from, of course. And uh, Britain and the United States, um, lots of... Uh, Country golfers in Australia, um, Japan, China, uh, Malaysia, Hong Kong, pretty much as Michael said, wherever he <coughs> roamed and uh, enjoyed himself playing golf or making friends, people have remembered him quite clearly. I suppose, yeah, you'd say uh, he's a person you remember clearly if you had something to do with him. Can you tell us the sort of how, the, how he'd been in the last couple of months of his life? What sort of how he'd been travelling? Well, he was losing, uh, with the Parkinson's disease, he was losing movement um, and he was losing a bit of uh, coherent thought from time to time. Uh, but through the fog of it all, uh, uh, most days he'd have periods where yeah, you could talk to him and he wouldn't respond at great length, but he, he knew what you are talking about. Yeah. And uh, even going back a year or so when Arnold Palmer died, that was, what, mm. about uh, 12, 14 months ago, he was... Yeah, Pretty was, crook yeah. then, so I I was back here visiting. So I went round to see him that morning when Arnold's uh, service was being broadcast on TV at great length, and uh, I thought he might need a bit of cheering up. So I sat down and said, "Oh, Dad, uh, Arnold has uh, passed away, and he was a month younger than you. Uh, imagine that he's he's gone first. And Dad looked at the TV and said, uh, "He was always in a hurry." <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, what was uh, I'm interested in uh, Peter's sense of himself and his sense of his greatness as a, a golfer because I heard uh, Mike Clayton say the other day that I think he visited the the home quite a few years ago and there was no memorabilia around, not too many uh, trophies or, or trinkets or things like that. He kind of had this life outside of golf, didn't he? But what was his sense of his own greatness as a player, do you think? Well, he saw it as a game, a uh, sport and a, a living that he could make from it. Uh, so he was more interested in what sort of golf clubs uh, were sitting in the corner in the garage and what people might be using out on the tour. And you know, he was a Scotsman, so he didn't like a cluttered place. He liked a simple sort of surroundings. So uh, you know, he had the memories of it, and he didn't talk at great length ever about this sort of thing. Um, it was harder to get uh, uh, any comment from him about golf uh, really at any time. Um, <clears throat> he had a particular thing about, I guess, me as his son. He, he didn't want me to aspire to play 
professional golf, uh, certainly as a young child. But did you inherit that beautiful rhythmic uh, swing in any shape or form? Well, the odd moment. Uh, <laughs> but you, you have to remember I'm only half a Thompson. Um, right. my, my, You're a nine marker, aren't you? Yeah, my mother, uh, the Kellys were not golfers. <laughs> they were good people, but they yeah. weren't playing Let's <laughs> well, not hold that no. against them, no. Um, why was that? Why did, did he ever explain that to you? Why he didn't want you to follow in the professional playing footsteps? He thought it was a gambling life. He, he, not, not in the sense of laying bets, but... He thought it was very unsteady, and you've got to remember he grew up in the Depression, or he was a young child, and <clears throat> I think the memories of his mother and father and the families and others sort of suffering in the 1930s, uh, and then really even as a young teenager in the Second World War, uh, you know, he had a sense that life could be a lot more steady and uh, safer. So this idea of trying to make a living and support a family from golf or other such crafts uh, was something best avoided. Did, did the game consume him? You hear a lot of stories of, um, you know, the great sports people of the planet have been so consumed by it that it becomes such a quest that family life suffers and people closest mm. to them are marginalised to a degree. Was Peter like that, or did he did he always maintain a some kind of perspective that perhaps is lost by others. Yeah, I think from the uh, the days playing tournaments really in, in the 50s through 60s and 70s, uh, it was really only five hours work a day. <clears throat> you know, they'd have a little warm-up and uh, get a, you know onto the first tee. They'd play their sort of four hours of golf and that was it. And, you know, they'd be back in the hotel and there'd be he and Guy Walston home or mm. Kel and they'd be, you know, thinking, well, where we have a meal and we've got to wash our socks and underpants and... <laughs> Uh, you know, there was there was there was no team that came with you, so he developed a, a habit of reading a lot. He'd always have a hardback book uh, with him, and um, he made friends with sort of authors among other people along the way. So, coming back here to Melbourne, he developed a golf course design uh, practice with Mike Wolveridge and uh, John Harris. Sort of helped him start off, uh, and then the commentary came along. So he would devote himself to those pursuits really post or during the tournament life uh, and then the PGA work that was also very important mm, so mm. he had a lot of other things to do other than you know, try and win prize money Were you a big washer of your own socks and jocks after a game of yeah, Every golf pro is a washer I of his I can't imagine you were doing but, too much But I remember that. reading, you know, Peter would write about the boredom of the tour how, how you filled in the, the time between the four hours that you were playing and how soul destroying that would be I mean, I, Andrew, my question would be I, I mean, my from my reading of what his early life was, that he chose the life of a golf pro because he was so precociously good at such a young age. It was obvious that, well, I can do pretty well out of this. But he was clearly head and shoulders above. I mean, he was a Norman Adam Scott type talent of his time when, well, it was obvious that he could make a great life and living from playing the game because he was that much better than everybody else. And that he was so good, so young. Good enough to win the Open at Australian Open at, 21 and yeah. the Victorian amateur 18 and clearly a prodigy really well people told him he couldn't Henry Cotton said you know you, you're fooling yourself you, you can't make a living with this you've got to go back to the, the club on Saturday and Sunday and you know, look after the members they, they'll pay you I mean, this tournament winnings won't feed you so I, I have a sense when he was told that he thought no no I'll prove this fellow wrong uh, and 
in in some sense that early post-war notion of a celebrity uh, player. There were uh, pre-war celebrities, Harrison and others. Well, Hagen, who, and yeah, Hagen, I suppose. Exhibition yeah. matches, yeah. yeah they made yeah. the money out of exhibitions. Yeah. So, um, but this idea of were there enough tournaments in a year to support uh, you know, a devotion to travel and this sort of thing. And as Mike said, when he chose to go to Asia regularly uh, and see what he could do to help them you know, uh, get up a circuit, uh, that that really consumed him. He loved uh, that part of the world. What was he like as a dad? Would you say, was he a hard dad, a, an easy dad, or a supportive dad? Oh, no, he was a... Uh, you wouldn't call it remote. That's the wrong adjective. But he, he wasn't the sort of father who would interfere or... Uh, have much to say uh, from day to day when he when he was back here. Don't forget a lot of my young life. Uh, he was away, I don't know, eight or nine months a year, I suppose. Uh, when he was back uh, for the tournament season, November through to about February, which often included New Zealand, you know, he was busy playing golf. Um, but he was around and um, <clears throat> he'd always come home and look in the fridge and see, we've got enough milk and <laughs> things like that. So uh, it, 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 you didn't have the sort of Tiger Woods team of 100 people going down to the milk bar and yeah. buy, buying the full cream milk. <laughs> didn't we, we have did the physio dropping around uh, or the masseuse. No, no, no. no. Um, he he had a, an acerbic wit to him and a, a kind of a, a bluntness, I suppose you would say. He He could be very direct with his speech at times. Was he like that with his, his children? No, no, he was very gentle at home. Um, <clears throat> if you'd say, oh, Dad, I, I think I need to buy a cassette player, uh, he'd say, well, open the window and listen to the birds sing. Or something <laughs> like that, you know. It's just, that's the sort of thing you'd get. Um, you know, we'd get the cassette player eventually, but uh, that, that's really what he was like. He was a gentle sort of fellow. Um, and you were telling me before that he was friendly with... Well, I know that he, he, he had a, a kind of a relationship with... Sir Robert Menzies, who shared his love of Carlton Footy Club as well, and uh, although Menzies wasn't a golfer, but uh, was it Ian Fleming was a friend, and uh, he also knew uh, King, one of the Kings. Yeah. Well, Fleming was a, a, a very keen golfer, Sunningdale, I think, um, and he befriended Dad, uh, as did Sean Connery, who sent a message the other day, uh, about a month ago, uh, just sort of saying hello. But uh, Fleming made my father promise never to read a James Bond book. He said they're rubbish, such rubbish. He said the sort of books you read, I couldn't bear the idea of you reading a Bond book. And so Dad never did, ne never turned a page of James Bond. Is that Bond right? Book. He wasn't yeah. even no. tempted to no, stick his he, nose in one? Yeah, no. Fleming sent him a telegram, I think, after 1965 uh, open, saying something like, <clears throat> well done, Bond. Or something like that. <laughs> the reason I asked you about Menzies was because yeah. you went into politics yourself on the the liberal side. Uh, you were you were a member for Wentworth, Wentworth for a while, and you were minister for sport. And Peter stood for uh, state politics mm. uh, in 1982 and was was beat. Yeah, so did, was yeah. the politics a, a topic around the house? Oh, it was. Yeah, Dad was interested in sort of current affairs and. Uh, he was friendly with Lee Kuan Yew and sort of various people like that. And so you'd sort of have it around the table. It wasn't what you'd call an ideological sort of atmosphere. But uh, Lindsay Thompson asked him to run for that seat at Paran. Sam Loxton had held it and then they'd lost it. And so Dad gave it uh, oh, a good two years of door knocking and all that. And <clears throat> anyway, John Kane then swept to power. And so uh, despite a reasonable sort of swing, uh, Dad uh, wasn't elected, and 
thank heavens, because he then went off to play the seniors tour after that. Uh, so had he won, and he, went he, okay there. Yeah, well, he, you know. So he would have been a small L type liberal, like a, yeah, a Menzies yeah. style. Yeah, uh, rather than a he wasn't a, a great ideologue. No, liberal. no. But um, uh, Menzies was somebody I think admired, um, and they had a sort of a friendship through the Carlton Football Club, mm-hmm. and Menzies would send him the odd telegram and so forth. But uh, and what about King Edward? You were telling me before that he he met and knew King Edward. Well, he became the Duke of Windsor. Um, was exiled to France after the war, and he turned up at the French Open one day when Dad was playing and. Jack Galbally was in the gallery, and Jack was a very good friend, a, a Labour Party member of the State Parliament, and a, a good player. He was off about two or three, and a member of Victoria Golf Club. So Dad introduced him to the Duke in the gallery, and uh, they spent the next few holes walking together as Dad played. And when Jack got back to Victoria, the members said, "But Jack, you know, you're an Irish Republican. What are you hanging out with the royal family for? And what did he ask you?" And Jack said he, he asked me whether Collingwood would win the flag this year. <laughs> of course he did. Um, we're going to have to let you go, but how proud, you know, the son and the father, children and their parents, they look up to them. Are you mm. enormously proud of what your dad was able to achieve in his life? Yeah, we always were and we remain so, but dad always said that he wasn't the first. He built on what had come before the professionals, Australians and others, that had been toiling away in the 30s and the post-war. Uh, so he built on that. And when he saw young players you know, in the 80s, 90s and so forth, he did what he could to help them. So we sort of see him as part of a, a long and continuing tradition of a, especially Australian golf mm. and golf design and, and good golf commentary and writing. And he was a part of that. So whatever we can do to help others uh, draw inspiration from, from what he did, we'll always do that. And last one from me, did you ever get a sense from him? Did you get a sense from him as what he regarded as the most significant achievement of his life or contribution that he made to, get to the game? Was there one that he's got a sense from him towered above all others? Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but there was an awful lot. Yeah. It's hard to sort of really put a finger on one thing. There were President's Cup victories, World Cup, and, of course, his own victories. But I guess just an example to follow um, for others that you you don't have to be too much uh, sort of of yourself. You should be part of the game and the sport and not not be selfish and don't (laughs) three-putt. Andrew, it's been a delight to have you on the show. It's been um, a really significant week for Australian sport, obviously a, a really important week for your family and at the end of it all we really appreciate you coming in and talking to us about your dad we um, thank you for being part of the show Oh you're very kind. Andrew right, Thompson, thank son you. of Peter, whose mark uh, has been as significant as any and the footsteps will linger for uh, eternity I suspect we'll get a break out of the way here on Inside the Ropes come back uh, with more after this Hi, 
This is Sherelle McMahon. Swing Fit is the fun, healthy, social way for women to get started in golf. You'll learn the basics of the golf swing and how to putt over a six-week program and get your whole body moving through yoga and Pilates-style exercises. You don't need any golf knowledge or equipment. Simply turn up in comfy clothing and get started. You'll be surrounded by like-minded people and receive constant support. So get outdoors, meet new friends and learn a sport that you can play for the rest of your life. To find a program near you, visit swingfit.com.au. G'day guys, I'm Scott Hend. I'm around the world playing golf everywhere, but when I can, I love listening to Inside the Ropes. Welcome back to the show. Uh, there's a bit to talk about off the back of all of that, but we should, before we do any of that, um, welcome Simon Brookhouse onto the show, the CEO of Golf Victoria. Again, off the back of a magnificent week for your tournament, uh, Brookie. Thanks for coming on the show. No problems, mate. Thanks for having me. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of that in a moment, but we just wanted to spend a moment. You were listening to Andrew Thompson uh, while having a chat to him. Um, beautiful storyteller. Great way to remember the legacy left by Peter Thompson, his dad. That sense that you got from him right at the very end when he talked about Peter being part of the continuum not setting himself above and apart from, you know, you, Blakey, as a golf rider, mm. you, Simon, as an administrator, or you, Clates, as a player and a golf course designer. He very much saw himself as just being part of it. Did you did that ring true to you when you heard Andrew sort of put that? Yeah. He, I mean, Norman Von Neider was the – he really helped Peter when he first went to Britain. They, they shared their prize money the first year they played and – took him around, he introduced him to the clubs and the people and the people who would help him in his career. And he just always saw that as that was a, a part of Australian golf was handing down the knowledge to the next generation. And he did it for Graham Marsh and Ian Baker Finch and Stuart Ginn and Bob Shearer, all, all of our generation. I mean, anyone who wanted any help, he was always there. But, but he would make you think, the, the famous story about Peter Fowler, who just won the World Cup and finished third in the Australian Open, caught him in the car park at Kingston Heath and said, you know, Peter, you've been watching me play the last on, on TV the last few weeks. He said, what do you think I should do to improve my game? And he said, hmm. He said, shoot lower scores, Peter. <laughs> and he walked off in turn. He said, hmm, that's it, Peter. He said, shoot lower scores. And Chuck was so angry. You can't believe what that fucking old bastard said to me. And only years later did he realize what he was actually saying. He was making... I'm not going to give you the answer. You need to think about the answer. But you know, the, the aim of golf is to shoot lower scores. So one, he was saying... You'd shoot, you know, as Ben Hogan said to Nick Faldo, when asked, how do I win the US Open? Shoot the lowest score, Nick. It's obvious, but it's true, painfully true. And he was also saying, stop worrying about your swing and the way you play and just don't three, as Andrew said, don't three-putt. Mm. Hank Haney, don't three-putt. Don't take penalty shots. Don't double chip. You know, just get that score down. Stop so obsessing with all the irrelevant stuff that's, of course... The other side of that coin is that if you took Peter Fowler's swing and Peter Thompson's swing, one was the easiest motion ever in golf ever and the most repeatable. And Chuck used to, had to work unbelievably hard to make that thing work from day to day. So they were two, they were chalk and cheese in terms of how, how, how hard and how easy the game was for him to play. But shoot lower scores, Peter. Yeah. And it was, it's such a great line. And, and Chuck said to me years later, he said, God, he was so right. He said, I, if, if only I'd listened to him. Yeah. 
you know, but, but, but he would make you think. He wouldn't just give you the obvious, sit you down for an hour and run you through it. He would just shoot lower scores, Peter. You just brushed over something there, Clates, which I've heard you say before about them sharing prize money. I find this extraordinary, Andy. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so, it's amazing. so yeah. they actually agreed to split their money. Yeah. Right? Well, when John Kelly and I turned pro, we'd won the, the two amateurs, throwing amateurs in 78 and 79. We went and stayed with Norman Vinita. Our first tournaments as a pro, we went up to Corelban and stayed with him for a week. And he suggested we, for our first year, we share our prize money. I mean, we didn't, but he was still talking about it. You know, 30 years later, he was still talking about the concept of when you go out there, you share your, your, your expenses and your prize money. And, you know, it was, it was a notion that was not foreign in the 50s, but certainly. Who, who, who would that have been more beneficial for, had you, in your first year? Oh, uh, well, I'd have, I won. Forty grand in a week, about three months later. So, yeah, it would have been it would have been a disaster for me. <laughs> but, but, um, but it might it might have helped John. I don't look. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. It's not but, but it certainly was saying to Peter. Yeah, you know, it was a bit like, in in a sense, Mike Kaiser, not physically underwriting the golf course at Bamboogle for Richard Sattler, but he emotionally underwrote it, saying, "If you run out of money, give me a call." Yeah. You know, that was what Von Nida was saying to Peter. You know, if you run out of money, I'll be there. So don't worry about the money. That'll be fine. Let's just go and play. Yeah. And I'm sure they would have been neither. I mean, Peter was sixth in his first Open at Port Rush, and I'm sure he did pretty well in his first year. And he was, you know, he, he was hit it done fine right from the get-go. But, mm-hmm. but the notion was that, you know, if you go over there and struggle, don't worry, because I'll be there to back you up. I asked uh, Andrew about Peter's directness because you know he he's got that he had that ability to strip the game back to incredibly uh, simple terms. But there's a story, isn't it, Clates, about uh, something that he said to Billy Dunk, who who I think he didn't get along with. No, they uh, didn't. No, uh, didn't he put his arm around him after he beat him in match play? And I think Billy Dunk had missed a short putt. Is that that right? Well, look, it, it, it'll be an apocryphal story, but. And I don't even know if it was Dunkey, but Dunkey and Peter graded a bit because Dunkey was cranky and angry and the complete opposite temperament of Tomo and a brilliant player. But there was a, st- it might have even been Dunkey, but there was a six foot putt that hit a spike mark and spun around the hole and whipped out. And, you know, the, 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 the aforesaid player was in contusions of agony and Tomo walked up and whispered, he said, that happened to me once, which is <laughs> such a great line because it's so true. I mean, everybody's ever yeah, played it. There's always a message there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the message is that you yeah. have bad luck in yeah. golf. You're not yeah. the only one, mate. Yeah. I mean, there was a great line. He was commentating, Andrew was talking about how he was commentating it. Obviously, he commentated for the ABC for years. He was down commentating at the New Zealand Open. It was probably 1993, I guess. The Open was at Power Pram, I think, and Grant Wade had won at Congressional that year. And his fellow commentator was gushing about Grant's weight, Grant Wade's potential, and he was a terrific player. Great swing. And in fact, he would have annoyed Tom because he was such a great swinger. Like, why aren't you doing better? And he was gushing about Grant Wade's potential, how well he played. He won in America. And Peter said, mm, he said, how old is he? He said, oh, he's 32, Peter. He said, hmm. He said, I'd won four Opens by then. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of, it was, it was, you know, which was his yeah. way of saying, he better move it along a bit. <laughs> Put everything <laughs> you know, in perspective. Yeah. Mm, I'd won four <laughs> Opens Look, by then. We could be here, we could do a whole pod and a whole radio show, I reckon, just on these stories. And I think as time rolls on, hopefully there'll be more of them just roll out. But Simon Brookhouse is here, um, and we do need to get a wriggle on. To talk about the magnificent announcement we talked about it on the show last week but um 
the four years extension, the prize money increase up to three million, the gender equity between the men and the women, it stays where it's been at Thirteenth Beach. How how has this happened? How has this tournament that started was the mouse that has now roared? How, how has that happened? Uh, look, to be fair, I think it's the simplicity of what it is. The fact that um, it's become an enjoyable tournament for people to play in. And uh, the publicity around the world in terms of the men and women every year, no matter what the prize money, has been really strong. Um, and it helps that we've got a very supportive government, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. the truth is a lot of people look at the government and say, look, yeah, Daniel's a pro-golfer and uh, pro as in supportive of. Uh, but the truth is that they support good events and it's a good regional event and it, it promotes the game and it's well supported by the community. But more than anything else, the players love it. And I think that's the biggest selling point for it. I think when when we announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that the the social media reaction, particularly amongst the players, was so positive that it really almost endorsed the decision to to move forward in the way we have. It's not only everything you say there is one hundred percent right and deserves fleshing out, but the fact that it remains as unique as it is, despite the fact that everybody around the world is looking at this and going, "That's such a great idea. We should do that." We should do that with the Scottish Open. We should do that with the Korean Open. We mm. should do that with Opens here, there, and everywhere. It's not as – and you say it's simple, but it's not – it's a lot easier said than done, clearly. Yeah, look, I, th- I think one of the great um, additions to the concept for us is such a great facility. Yeah. The 36-hole venue, the community, the feel about it and where it is. But um, the simplicity of it is as simple as – two fields, mixing them up, alternating groups and, and what we've been able to do. However, um, you've got to be willing to do that. And the one thing I think we've got in Australia, particularly amongst the tours, the, the men's and the women's, is a camaraderie and the ability to work together. And I think the, the difficulty in other countries is bringing the LET and the European tour together or the LPGA and the PGA and, and the Japan tours, whatever it might be. Um, they're really big, big beasts of their own. Uh, and I think that makes it a little more difficult than it does here for us. We work far more closely together, I think, than the other tours around the world. And I think that's a positive for Australian golf yeah, and, and a really yeah. good sign. How important is it for women's golf too? I mean, for women's sport in Australia, because you see, you see, it doesn't work that seamlessly in other professional clubs. As this, you know, growth in professional women's sport, particularly in the football codes, you know, is going through this sort of unbelievable growth mm. phase. In Australian pro sports, it doesn't work as seamlessly as some people would like it to. The fact that it does work so beautifully hand in glove um, with the Vic Open is a credit to everybody involved. Yeah, and I think one of the strengths of that is is that the, the skill levels of the males and the females are, are very similar. Uh, they might hit the ball to different distances, but in terms of overall skill and the ability to actually execute the game, not unlike tennis and at the elite level of tennis, um, that helps, but I think some of the other codes you, you, you mentioned there is there is a disparity between the skills of the yeah, males and the females point. at yeah, this yeah. point in yeah, time. Yeah, I'm not yeah. suggesting that they won't catch up, but I think that golf's been around for both the men and the women for such a long period of time mm-hmm. now that um, the competitiveness and the, the outcomes, and you only look at our scores uh, of every tournament we've had, they've been very close, the male winner and the female winner. So there's a bit of a parity about how they play the game together. What's the future of this event? Because you've been uh, building the prize money, I think, from you know, multiplied by ten times in five years, which or six years, which is incredible. But you imagine in, the next five. Well, you're now in the area <laughs> that you can uh, possibly get onto the European tour. 
uh, with the men and possibly the LPGA with the women. I presume that's what you're after. Yeah, look, I mean, we're certainly uh, in fairly solid negotiations with the European Men's Tour. In fact, um, only last night we had a really positive teleconference with them. But is there a spot in the calendar? There is a spot in the calendar, right. yeah. The, the the spot in the calendar will be the week um, that's been announced for the tournament, which is the week before the Women's Open and, and what will end up being the Perth event. Mm-hmm. Um, if that works, it'll mean two men's European Tour events in Australia, but there's still a bit of water to go into the bridge and negotiation there, but we're quite confident that Are we talking that's the way we'll go. 219 there? 2.19, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can that work? It's just hypothetically, could that work, having two European Tour events... Did you say on the same week? No, back to back. Oh, back to back. Yeah. I beg your pardon. Well, that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. So the, the the advantage for the European Tour of that is that they've struggled to get their best players to come down for one event because it is quite a, a task to get down to Australia for one week. So they've been very keen to get a second tournament in February down here to hopefully leverage the Perth event and a Victorian-based event. So that will enable more to come down, and there's a there's a economies of scale to come down for two weeks, not only for the players but also for the tour. Clayton says a healthy rivalry. When you were coming through the ranks, the state opens had a greater, much greater status um, around Australia. Mm. I think it's fair to say than they do now. Um, they were all tele- most of them were televised. Um, great international players participated. They were they were sought after titles. How will it resonate around the other? Um, you know, state bodies that Victoria has this open that is doing what it's doing and is on the verge of getting the status that um, Simon's talking about. Yeah, I mean, arguably it's the best tournament in the country, isn't it? It's not the best title. You know, of course, you'd rather win the Australian Open, but mm. arguably it's the best tournament, certainly the best event. And when it was in the 70s, I mean, the, the Masters only overtook it because IMG bought it from David Inglis and Frank Williams and put it on Channel 7, but the Vic Open was a much bigger event than the Masters for the longest time. But, I mean, it, it ought to be the the, the, the portent of the, the revitalisation of the State Opens, which are all essentially gone. As far, I mean, New South Wales is decent, I think. And, but, I mean, the um, South Australian Open was a terrific event, gone. Tasmania was a pretty good event. Um, West Australia was... The 1979 West Australian Open had... Ballesteros, yeah. Strange, Norman, Pate, Casper, Graham, Shearer, Marsh, um, Clayton. John Clayton. Clayton. I was an amateur. Roger Davis. It's um, a good field. I mean, it was an extraordinary field. But it was a one-off 150th yep. centenary event. But that was an amazing event. And then Greg came back and won that in 86 when he came back and won all the, the year he won the Open. He won the World Match and came back, European Open. He had that long run of winning everything until Mike Howard beat him at Castle Hill. But he won the... West Australian Open at Karen Up, and so they were all terrific events. Oops. You know, the New South Wales Open. I remember Nick Price playing there. Nick Price won the South Australian Open one year. So they were they all. I mean, the trick is to how do you revive them? For, well, that's well, well, with the money. I mean, yeah. I mean clearly, you know, the premier here has been very generous, but but that generosity has been rewarded by the creation of a great event that was, in truth, it wasn't. I mean, I played the ones at Spring Valley and at Woodlands and at Cranbourne, and they were, they were okay events, but they were nothing like it is now. And, and it proved that if you take it to a place where the locals appreciate it, it'll, they'll do well. No doubt. And that's why it makes um, it fits into the Victorian government investing in regional Victoria. This is stated, stated ambition, you know, several years ago. So mm. it ticks that box. Um, you want to get some bang for your buck and show it to the world. And 
part of doing that is getting more extensive media. Everybody at Golf Fix done an unbelievable job in terms of making the media that you've made. But I imagine you'd like a greater media partner. And a, where, where where are you at with that? Yeah, look, I mean, the the, the, the sanctioning with a European tour um, means that it'll be broadcast. Uh, and their, their distribution worldwide is around 680 million houses. Uh, and that's really important in terms of the growth of the event and, and for our commercial partners. Uh, and also for, you know, for tourism and for, for, for the Geelong, oh, yeah. Geelong and Otway region, the Bellarine, the state government. And, and they're all the really positives about the event, that it is actually attracting interest uh, and, and attracting commercial partners and broadcast partners. We don't sense will be particularly difficult given the unique nature of it and the feedback we've got so far. I mean, the European tour actually approached us before we got the extra money. So it wasn't something that we went looking for. Uh, it was a discussion we had last year after the Perth Super Sixers event with them and said, well, look, I'll go away and try and secure some more money and then we'll talk down the track. And, and our team's done a great job, obviously, securing that four-year commitment and, and the state government, we can't thank them enough, to be brutally honest, but it allows us to look at expanding the women's side and there's opportunities there around LPGA, depending on schedules and those sort of things as well. Um, that we need to flesh out now, now that it's real and we've announced that the hard work's really starting. So and we just continue to try and do what we can to grow it. Interesting thing, going back to Peter Thompson, how much he abhorred the notion of appearance money, saying that mm-hmm. in his book that uh, Australia's not much different from Brazil or Nigeria, really. <laughs> and the fact that we pay for, you know, call it demeaning. But I... Spoke to So Young you the other day, who's looking forward to coming to play. I mean, you know, she said, if it works for my schedule, I'll absolutely come and play. But not a hint ever of how much, how much are you going to pay me to come here. Yeah, yeah, if you talk to a European tour player who's someone's heard of, and it's like the first question will be, how much do I get to play? Mm. It's just you know, the, the, the concept of women understanding they need to support that LPJ tour and go and play and don't ask for appearance money and everyone turn up and play and support, which was, which was Peter's idea. You know, we need to support these Thomas and turn up and play without bleeding them drive money out of the budget to, to, to pay for the appearance for one or two stars. Mm. So the women are incredibly good at supporting events like the Vic Open without sticking their hand out. Mm. Mm. And I think the key to that too is, is they'll support something they enjoy. You know, if Absolutely, they came down yeah. here, didn't have a good time, didn't have fun doing it, I, you know, it'd be hard to get them back. But it's almost like a good sales pitch, isn't it? The repeat business you get is really important. But the girls particularly, uh, we've had more international flavour on the women's side, have been the great salespeople for this event. And the Mike Wands of the LPGA knew about this event mm. because his players have told him, um, have a look at this, it's it's great fun, we really enjoyed it and we want to go back. Brookie, uh, in the broader sense, Australian to- golf, tournament golf, it feels like you've turned the tide here with this tournament. You're going and, you know, everyone else was struggling. Uh, the prize money is low compared to overseas uh, at other tournaments. Even the Australian Open is only worth one and a quarter million, one and a half million. Um, does it say to you and, and the rest of us that tournament golf in Australia can grow and can get back to what, you know, perhaps what it was? I'd like to think so. I think that what it shows is that if you're willing to do something a little bit different, that people will buy in. Uh, I think there's enough talk around the world in the golf circles at the moment that some of the 72-hole stroke play style events are getting a bit stale and and change may well be necessary. Uh, We've seen that in the European Tour with the Super Sixes and 
um, the the team's events that they've had and various other things. I, I'm not for the minute saying we, we rule out 72-hole events. That is what golf is, like five sets tennis and these sort of things and, and five-day test cricket. There's a place for them, but I think there's a place in the world of professional golf for different styles of events to attract people and attract a media audience to it. Um, I don't believe that we could do every tournament around the world, men and women, for a minute because it's just not logistically possible. But I suspect that, you know, Clate's talked about the state opens and, and the ability to revitalise those. There's nothing to say we can't look at starting on an 18-hole facility with a 72-field men, 72-field women to start to grow it. And, and, and the funding available for men's and women's equality is really important in this country at Absolutely. the moment. So yeah. you've got to start. So, I mean, my, my view on these things is you've got to start somewhere. They may not work all the time, but if we don't take a risk to try and improve, uh, we'll probably go backwards. Well, what do you think about an Australian Open with alternating men's and women's? A women's Open with coinciding with a men's Open. How would that go? Uh, look, I think a lot of people think it'd be great. Yeah, and, and I do too. I, but again, we talked about the scheduling and the different tours, and there's difficulties in that. Um, I mean, I've often thought about it. Well, what about we, you know, Royal Melbourne East West alternating composite course on the weekend for the men and women? It'd be really exciting. Is it possible? Well, it takes a bit of negotiation around the tours and, and the scheduling of the players, which I think for golf's the, the most difficult thing to actually get on top of is the actual scheduling. Um, but you never say never with these things. And it may not be every year. You might say, well, we can do that every four years. To have something that's really impressive every four years, we'll try and do that rather than every year. Simon, mm. four years, 13th Beach, $3 million, growth happening before our eyes. It's uh, a credit to yourself and your team at Golf Victoria that you've been able to um, navigate your way to where you are right now. You've mentioned a couple of times, of course, the enthusiasm and support from Daniel Andrews and his government here, that goes without saying. But the idea was germinated in your offices and uh, everybody involved uh, deserves a pat on the back. Congratulations. We can't wait to be part of it all again in the next coming years. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Andy. And that, Andy, that's really important too. It has been a massive team effort. It's, yeah. it's not any individuals. And, you know, the board have had to be really supportive of this of change too. So we take our hat off to all of them willing to take the risk. Simon Brook, our CEO of Golf Victoria, a landmark announcement about the future of that tournament last week. Any little general business before we want to wrap it up? Um, we'll remind people. Yeah, Andy, the uh, British Amateur uh, was completed oh, yeah. uh, the other day. Interesting winner, Ernie Els' nephew, a guy called Josen Rebula from South Africa. Ernie Els' nephew. Uh, and David Michaluzzi from Victoria, who was the star of the interstate team's uh, he's the reigning Vicar Amateur Champion and Master of the Amateur Champion. He got to the quarterfinals, which is a pretty good effort. I mm. think he's going to be, you know, he must be turning pro pretty soon, David. Yeah, you assume. Although yeah. he's young, there's no, there's no hurry. They want to rush, rush out there in a hurry because yeah. they. they yeah. Well, the Ryan Ruffles example gets thrown up there, doesn't it? Yeah, because he that. went very early. I guess he he'd sort of done everything, but he went very early, and now he's he's kind of struggling. Well, you can say that, but what, it doesn't bother you, does you it? Say, well. What did he want would be the question. I mean, Ryan's a terrific player. I've, I've mm. seen him play some beautiful golf. But I just wonder, I, I think every, every year you get out there pre-21 years old as a year, you lose at the end of your career because you're worn out by uh, Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for 
not jumping out there too and just early. Just the stuff you miss out on too, Clates. You miss out on a bit of stuff, I reckon. Just growing up time no. and yeah, being out in the tour at nineteen is not. Yeah. It's not the great place to be at nineteen. No. I don't think. So, Andy, was there a Roger Bannister this there, week? There is one. Yeah. I, I, I apologise if we've already put him in there. I didn't have the complete file, but um, we celebrate Roger Bannister's speed. Uh, the first man to break. Uh, the four-minute mile, and we juxtapose what Bannister did against some of the blokes who were ruining the game. And JB Holmes, I, again, I apologise if we've already put him in the file and didn't just didn't have the records of that, but he was he was disgusting at the Travellers. He, it, it's not just over one or two shots; it's just about over every single shot now. When he gets over the ball, he actually hits it, but it takes him forever. He's a, he twitches. He um, he readjusts his grip, he sort of has waggles, he has practice swings, he gets behind the ball, he checks out the line, he gets back, he waggles again, he talks to his caddy. It is, it's 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 actually no good. I can't believe they don't call him. Well, it, it, my question, is it OCD? Is, is he kind of got the disease where he actually can't pull the trigger? I mean, I've got that's, sympathy for blokes happened, who it? have that, yeah. where you actually just can't get to walk in and hit it. You get so... Tied it up looks like that. That's yeah. what it looks like. I've seen, it can't be any uh, good for the blokes behind him. Like if in Casey sort of bogeyed sixteen, seventeen, and played himself out of the tournament. Um, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was in the group behind JB Holmes. It can't be much fun if you're trying to get into a rhythm. You're waiting just on playing, every shot. Yeah, and you're sitting there with your cat. You're aware yeah. of it because you can watch it. You can see it yeah. from 150 mm. meters away. You know what's going on. I mean, yeah. so he's obviously not going to go and play in Austria in the. The shot clock, shot clock would tournament. not be very good for him. Well, look, they should enforce the rules, shouldn't they? Yeah, they should enforce yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jordan Speed's taking a break before Carnoustie is caught. Just for those who are interested in it, his last six or seven weeks have been poor by standards. He's missed a couple of cuts, no top tens, which is unusual for the career sort of yeah. bio of um, and trajectory of Jordan Speed. So, ironically enough, he's lost. His, he seems to have lost his putting. He which, does. Which, um, you know, for a guy that we this time last year would have said he's the yeah. best putter in the world. Where did he finish up last week? He shot sixty three the first day, didn't he? I didn't no see good. Him. No, no. Uh, but 20, I mean, I think if you, 40, if you somewhere. like, he's a terrific player. But if you live by the putter, you can die by it if it if it goes away. So his yeah. remedy is to a bit of time off. So uh, he'll be back for the open. I'm not sure what he'll play before it. Um, don't forget, if you're new to the podcast, uh, you can subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Play nine. Blake, you've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. You get this the chance to thing. play the same course, same week of the Australian Open. At the Lakes Open, in the Australian yeah, Open. Which is yeah, awesome. Yeah. Just great get your club. Course. If your club is not involved in this, go and ask them why not because it's very easy. You just enter the competition in the club. Yep. Any club can do it. You get to go to a couple of functions as well um, and play at the Clayton Renovated Lakes. Which you might only want to play nine if you worn no, no, out to nine holes. Don't listen. That, it's, I no. think it's a much better golf. I think they're going out on no, the front nine. Which well, the front nine, you know, it's got got a kind right. of, kind of couple of unusual holes. That that par four, the short par four with the what? Well, there's a kind of a, a heap of rough in the middle yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, the same, yeah. yeah. yeah it's I like nice. the front nine. The front yeah. nine, the lakes is terrific. Bruce Devlin when they the freeway went through the golf course in the late sixties. Yeah. yeah. So Bruce Devlin and Von Haggy redid the golf course, and they did a tremendous job fitting those holes into that. Little pocket of land over the under the freeway. Yeah, um, and if you do subscribe, G Oakford from Golf Victoria, who supplies us with our um, housekeeping, is a big fan of the five star review. And if you do give us a five star review, he makes sure that you know he gets mentioned on the show. And we have one from Shazar or Shazza 
2802. I won't read it out because it's quite long, but um, the name has been mentioned. And um, I think I'm calling someone on your phone there, Blakey. But um, uh, if you do subscribe, give us a five-star review and your name will get a mention on the show. Uh, sad week for Australian golf. I'm glad Andrew came in today. We got some time to... Speak. It was nice, wasn't yeah, it? it was some, some great yeah. anecdotes. He's a lovely speaker as well. Absolutely. Um, See Good you next on you, week. Andy. Good See on you, you. Marty Blake. Thanks for coming in again, Clates. Thanks, mate. Mike Clayton, part of the show. Uh, we'll be back next week to do it all again, folks. See you then.